Better? All right. Um, so know that the program, uh, know that stands for No One Dies Alone. And several of you actually register and sign up to be part of this program. I want to say thank you. Um, also, uh, shortly after I was here, we put the, the announcement that was on the newspaper, we put on Facebook, actually a friend of mine put on Facebook and some other platforms. And by, the, by that time, we've been advertising NODA for about two months, and we had about 25 volunteers, which was great. Uh, when we put it on social media, in less than 24 hours, we went from 20 to 80 people registering. A week later, we are at 200. Right now, we have crossed 300 and we stopped counting. First, the power of social media. Second, I told my husband, you know what? We listen to a lot of stuff on the news, but there's more good in this world than evil because people are willing to give up their time to sit with somebody that is dying. So I was talking to Rosette and she said, tell us a little bit about Noda. And I just remember, so this kind of last minute that I sent a letter to one of our leaders from a family member that received the benefit of Noda. So I want to read to you. It's a really long letter, so I'm just going to read a few portions. But um, for all of you who are Noda volunteers, dear Chaplain Christina, from the bottom of our hearts, we are writing to thank you for the assistance my husband and I received from your NODA program. After five days of constant vigil with our loved one, and I'm going to say P, I won't use her name, P, we were at a point of physical and emotional exhaustion when a nurse at the hospital told us about NODA. But our fear of leaving our loved one and she possibly dying alone was unbearable. Our nurse assure, reassures that somebody will be with her the entire time we were away. However, because of our many previous experience with P and their various cares, we are hesitant to leave her with strangers. Our physical, and mental, our physical and mental exhaustion left us with no options. I had but had 17 hours of sleep in, seven, in five days. My husband and I agreed to a four-hour respite so we could go home and shower and eat. Upon leaving, we were anxious. But upon returning and reading the know the volunteers' notes, we were touched and reassured. So every time we have a, a volunteer, they write a journal of what happened during that time, what they did, what they read, everything. The note left in the journal did not only recount the hours while we're gone, but the tone was filled with love and compassion. We were overwhelmed with gratitude. The volunteers doing those brief encounters with our P gave back to her what had been stolen from her over the many years, her dignity. And then she goes on on describing the terrible um, experience that this patient had suffered. I'm going to skip over that. I witnessed as P was cared for with love tenderness and compassion by the nurses and aides, but most importantly, in those last hours of her life, by know the volunteers who sat with her, read to her, sang to her, and talked with her. It's hard to find the words to express the peace and comfort we as a family felt knowing that such loving, caring, kind angels were with our loved ones. Absolutely an amazing program. So thank you for all of you who have signed up to be another volunteer. 
Uh, but that's not what the sermon is about. So I want to tell you a story to introduce a story to introduce another story. That's what happens when you get an ADD preacher. <laughs> so here we go, a little ADD. <laughs> um, so um, a few years ago, my son and I went to see a movie. But first, I need to tell you the story to introduce this story. So when we live in Wenatchee, Washington, is a town. Anybody knows what Wenatchee, Washington is? Yeah, there we go. A town surrounded by mountains. We're talking real mountains. When my sons came here and then went skiing in Wisconsin, they go, Mom, that's like the bunny hill. <laughs> we're not going there <laughs> again. So there were real mountains. And we lived there uh, for three years. My husband was one of the pastors in the church. And I was the Bible teacher, the Spanish teacher, and the chaplain of our K-12 school. And so for all teachers, how many teachers? I see Patricia there. Okay. So when you come to Saturday afternoon, the last thing you want to do is be with kids. I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> I have been with kids all week long. So when my son said, Mom, we're going to go to so-and-so's house. There was a bunch of kids. We're going to go uh, ride four-wheelers, you know, because it's really hilly, so it's really fun in the mountains. And they said, come on, come. You and Dad, we're all going. I said, smile. Great idea. Your father, a.k.a. my husband, your father will take you guys. <laughs> Goodbye. Lock the door. And I enjoy what some teachers sometimes don't have for many hours, peace and quiet. So I was enjoying my peace and quiet. And a few hours later, my husband calls. I can tell his voice is agitated. And he goes, I hope you're sitting down. I'm like, well, I'm sitting down. And my husband's a little a flair for the dramatic. I hope you're sitting down. Then I said, I hope you can clear your entire, yeah, his friends are there. You're nodding, right? You know my husband, John, yeah. Um, I hope you can clear your, your schedule for the rest of the day. Okay, so I'm going to pause right now and give a word of advice to all you husbands. If you have to call your wife with some bad news, here are three important things you should say right from the bed. There's been an accident. Everybody's alive. However, we're going to the hospital. You begin right there, then you go into details. But no, are you sitting down? I hope you clear your schedule. By this time, I was ready to do something to him to put him in the hospital. <laughs> Would you just tell me? And it's like, well, our son, our oldest son, who is our adventurous one, um, was there was a bunch of kids riding these four-wheelers. Um, throughout up and down. Well, he got a little too close to the edge, and uh, so then he rolled down. He rolled down the ravine, and as he rolled down, the, the AV, the four-wheelers came, touched him on the chest, so he lost conscious, and they had to call the ambulance. Um, and so he told me, you know, just go to the hospital. He said that there, we're just grabbing everybody else who will be heading that way. I never drove so fast. I drove so fast I got there before the ambulance got there. And just waited, waited. So there was some good news. There were no broken bones. There was some bad news. He did puncture both lungs with that accident. And so his plans for the summer of flying to see a friend had to be canceled because apparently we find out if you have puncture lungs, you shouldn't get to 36,000 feet altitude because your lungs will collapse and you'll be able to breathe. But the doctor said, it's okay, you know, it's going to recover. They heal on their own, which the body's an amazing 
think that we have, um, he's gonna be okay. But when they were discharged, the nurse told me, now he's going to feel very sorry for himself, he's gonna be in pain, he's gonna be moaning and groaning, but the last thing you wanna do is leave him in bed and not moving. We're talking lungs, we need to avoid, avoid pneumonia. We need him to move, to be constantly moving, so he can rest for a little bit and then do whatever you need to do to get him moving. So sure enough, the next day he's moaning and groaning and swear that you'll never have fun for the rest of his life. And I was like, can I get that in writing? And um, then I said, okay, son, uh, let's, let's get up, let's do something, let's go somewhere, let's go to the movies because this movie just came out, it's called Soul Surfer. Anybody have seen it? Yeah, it had just come out, Soul Surfer, amazing Christian movie, uh, an incredible story. And I said, I think you need some perspective and this movie is just going to give you that. So we went to see the movie. You know, and I just realized I left, just a second, I left the clicker over there, and I know I'm gonna need it at some point. <laughs> Thank you. So we left to go to the movies, um, and this movie was about a girl named Bethany Hamilton. She was a teenage girl, who lived in Hawaii and absolutely loved to surf. Surf was Bethany's passion and her life. Bethany and her best friend were homeschooled together so that their schedule could be arranged around the time when waves were the best. At the age of eight, she had already won her first surfing competition and kept competing and winning. But everything changed one morning and I'll just read it the way it was written. On October 31st, 2001, at the age of 13, Bethany Hamilton went for a morning surf along the tunnels beach in Kauai with her best friend, Alana Blanchard, and Alana's father and brother. Around 7.30 a.m. with numerous turtles in the area, she was lying on a surfboard with her arm dangling in the water when a 15-foot tiger shark attacked her, biting off her left arm just below the shoulder. The Blanchers helped paddle her back to the shore. Then Alana's father fashioned a tourniquet out of a surfboard leash and wrapped it around the stump of her arm before she was rushed to Wilcock Memorial Hospital. By the time she arrived there, she had lost over 60% of her blood and it was in hypovolemic shock. Her father, who was scheduled to have knee surgery that morning, was already there, but she took his place in the operating room, and she spent a week in recovery before being released. That morning, their lives were forever changed. It was as if a thick cloud has just landed over this family. There was a lot of pain, there were a lot of questions, and the laws of wondering what the future held. In watching Bethany's interview a few years after this incident, I heard her quote Jeremiah 29, 11. She mentioned that this verse sustained me. For I know, let me see if I get this right. Did I do something wrong? Thank you. I think I'm gonna just leave it, let you guys do it. Yeah, thank you. For I know the plans <laughs> I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and the future. This verse 
was written by a prophet named Jeremiah to a group of people in the Old Testament whose life also lives were forever changed by a tragic, very tragic event. They also felt like a thick cloud was hanging over their lives. There was a lot of pain, a lot of questions, a lot of wondering what the future held. I'm talking about the people of Israel. One of them was Daniel, thank you for the story, who at that time was 17 years old. This people, a group of about 10,000 of them, had just walked over 800 miles into their exile, captives in the land of the King Nebuchadnezzar. So Jeremiah 29:11 is part of a letter that Prophet Jeremiah wrote to this group of people who just suffered their own version of a shark attack. Their shark attack came in the form of a cruel and conquering king who killed, destroyed, ransacked, and dragged into his country the elders, the priests, the prophets, the government leaders, the queen, the king, and all the skilled laborers and craftsmen. In other words, he killed a lot of people, but he kept the cream of the crop of Israel. They survived, but he took them to his country. So each king had their own style on how to handle the survivors of their conquest. This is just what people did back in those days. They expanded their kingdom by going attacking. Some kids, kings would kill every, everybody and their animals, everything. Some others would take people captives. Some would leave people in their country and they just had to pay a lot of taxes to that king. But Nebuchadnezzar took the survivors because he wanted to weaken their power. Living in Israel was not a good idea according to King Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to decentralize the political power of Israel by taking the political and the religious leaders and the nobility. Only the poor were left behind. He was also doing something else. By taking them all the way to Babylon, they were weakening their spiritual power and strength. Now, in order for you to understand that, I have to give a little background. So, Back in those days, spirituality was quite geographic. So we'll start people believe in gods and goddesses that protect them and guide them. And, and that if they couldn't explain a force of nature, then they worship that as a god. That was just what people do. And people would create these images of wood. They would carve this god so they could put in their mantles. You know, they would be right there. You know, even you think this is antiquity, so I have a friend um, that I met in seminary. He's a pastor somewhere in Tennessee. And um, he, he just, he's just single. You know, it's like you don't see a single pastor, right? And so everybody's really worried about him because he's a single pastor. So when he was 40, some of his um, friends, they said, you know, uh, we know people in Central America, and they think that you should put a, a statue of St. Joseph on your front lawn because he's the patron of marriage. And so then you'll attract a wife that way. So we're not very different, are we? Yeah, so people had their gods. And then uh, most of the, the other tribes and the other countries, they had a god per town. So every city had a different god. And then there was the god of the country, the god of the land. Now Israel was slightly different 
because Israel had only one God, so the God was the God of this country, the God of the city. And then they all have houses for the gods, which they call temples. But Israel went a step further. They had the ark, the most holy place. There was the presence of God, the Shekinah. Shekinah was the, the essence of God, the law inside the ark. It was the essence of God. So there are some similarities with, other, with the other countries, but they had just a few things that are quite different. God trying to teach other countries about himself. So God and spirituality was of the land. So let me give you an example. We all know about the story of Naaman, the captain of Assyria. So Naaman had come to the northern part of Israel, conquered, took people with him, took a girl, an Israelite girl, and she was a captive of Captain Naaman. Captain Naaman contracted leprosy. He was way up there in his political career, in his military career. Leprosy was going to ruin everything, not just his health, his social life, but everything that his life was based on. And so this girl told him, you need to go to my country. There is a prophet who is going to help. And he didn't want to go, but finally had no option. If this really is going to help, I will go. So he went to the country, and he met with the prophet. And the prophet said, you go to the Jordan River, and you wash yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. And he almost didn't want to go. He wanted to go back. And the people that came with him, the whole entourage of people and mules and, and horses and everything, said, we came so far away. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because these rivers are dirty. We have better rivers. But you came here. Just do this one thing. We're already here. And then he did one time, and nothing happened. Well, this is not going to work. We'll just go. No, he said seven times. So he did seven times. He was healed. He came as a skeptical man. He left as a believer. The Bible says that he decided on that moment that he would only worship Yahweh. But here's a detail in the story that if you didn't miss it, you might not have understood it. He packed bags full of dirt. Anybody remembers reading that in the Bible? Yeah. He packed bags full of dirt, as many mules as they could carry all this dirt, and he took it with him. Do you realize now why? Because the God of Yahweh that he decided to worship is the God of the land where he was, not of Assyria. There was no way he could worship Yahweh in Assyria because Assyria had their own God. And this God was only here in this country. So he packed the dirt so he could get home and he spread all the dirt. So the Bible says that when you worship Yahweh, you step onto the dirt, the God of the land. This is the God of the land. That was very ingrained. So now that you understand this, Think what it means for these people to be taken to Babylon. Is Yahweh going to be with us? Yahweh is living behind, not only destroying everything, we have nothing. We don't even have our God. To make matters worse, he destroyed the city of God. He destroyed Jerusalem. To make it worse, 
he destroyed the temple, the house of God. To make even worse, he took the ark. And that was the last time they saw the ark, never to be found again. So this was the worst time for this group of people. The amount of loss they were experienced was tremendous. Not only they have spent months and months walking those 800 miles, but what about what was going inside their hearts and their souls? This created spiritual dislocation. When I look at this story, sometimes it's easy to dismiss a story because we say, well, they deserve it. You know, they start worshiping other gods. They, they reject the Yahweh. They were doing horrible things that, were, that other countries were doing, that God said never to do it. So they deserve it. But I want to believe that in that group, there are a lot of innocent people. Daniel was there, a faithful believer. So today I want to talk about the innocent people that were there. They were victims of the brutality of Nebuchadnezzar. So the reason also I focus in this group, because when I read the news nowadays, my heart goes out to the innocent people. The young girl that gets kidnapped by a guy. By the suicide bombers that go into a marketplace and people die. By the senseless murders that happen in Chicago. And we can bring it closer to our lives. The vegan that gets cancer, the person that does everything to be healthy. The jogger that jogged all his life and drops dead of a heart attack, leaving young people behind. I knew this person. Or the dedicated mother and father whose family falls apart. Or the hard worker who worked all their lives for a company only to find that his or her name was on the layoff list. Innocent victims are everywhere, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church. So yeah, so today my thoughts are toward the men and women, the children, the teenagers, the faithful followers of Yahweh who managed to survive the siege and the attack, but now find themselves forced refugees, captives in a foreign land, the land of their enemies. So I want to know about their fears, their questions, their struggles, and why did Jeremiah wrote this letter to them? These words were part of a long letter. We tend to bring that out and use it at graduations and use it at weddings as some sign of prosperity. And when they heard it, there was a lot of pain. They did not quite hear the way we're hearing it today. It was part of a letter. So I want to talk about the letter. So when humans are faced with very difficult situations or tragic events, there are about four questions we tend to ask. And I believe that Jeremiah's letter is attempting to answer those four questions. So maybe the first question. What is the first question that everybody asks when there's a tragic loss, when there's tragic news, when you, whatever it is that brings you pain? The first question, why? That's exactly what I had here. First question, why? Maybe some of the leaders knew why. But those faithful ones are still wondering why. For them, there are not any good answers or satisfying answers. 
And the ultimate answer to why innocent people suffer is still a mystery. And when we attempt to respond and to answer those questions, we walk into dangerous territory. Why young, innocent people suffer is still a mystery. Lots of books have been written. Lots of theologians have pondered and searched. I hear that question all the time, mostly sometimes from young mothers. When their teenage child was, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, when was victim of a crazy game that went wrong. And they're there on life support. And all I hear is, they're such good kids. Why? I don't have any good answers. And then I don't attempt to find one. In those moments, you hug somebody and you cry with them. Because that's all they need. The second question we ask, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? Did God stay in Jerusalem? Let's go back to the people of Israel. Remember, it was a God of the land of Judah. There's no way he's going to be in the land of our enemies. Could this God travel to enemy land? Could this God live outside his house, the temple? We believe in the Holy Spirit. We have a different concept, but they didn't. Their box of spirituality was very well defined and is not, it does not look like ours at all. So the people of Israel had to redefine their concept of God and spirituality. This God was not confined for, by the geographic boundaries or their own thinking box. And that's why now I want to show you the next slide. So now I'm going to show you the rest of the verses, 11, 12, and 13. That's why Jeremiah, who by the way, Jeremiah stayed in Israel. He stayed in the land of Judah, so he's writing to them. And he says, here is the message of God when you wonder where God is. I have it all, now I'm reading from the message. I've been going back and forth from the NIV and the message just to give you a little refresher because sometimes we get set in hearing the things the same way. I have it all planned out for you. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. And when you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I will listen. When you come looking for me, you will find me. So where was God? Right there, in the middle of it. In the middle of their suffering, their fears, their anxieties, their pain, their dislocation, waiting for the fog to clear so they actually could see him. Waiting for that little box to expand so they could see him, that God is not limited by the country boundaries. So God, whose house was destroyed, now they need to understand he was ready to live in their hearts. And what does the New Testament call us? The temple of God. What does the New Testament say the church is? The temple of God. He does not need, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple. It's all right. Go right ahead. I have a new temple now. And that's what Jeremiah was trying to help them understand. Do not grieve no more. God is in your heart. You are the new temple. 
And the God that was in a land is moving to another land. As a matter of fact, God is the God of the entire planet, which was the message that God was trying to give to Abraham to begin, to begin with. I am here, I chose you, a small group, to bless the whole world, all people. And the law, the law that was in the ark that is now gone, what does the Bible say? I will write the law in their hearts. So Jeremiah was helping understand a whole new concept of spirituality. A whole new picture of God and a whole new way of facing trials and tribulations in a world that is always less than perfect. Always less than perfect. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, but it was the exile that shattered their small box that contained their very small and limited God. So I want to share with you just a quote I read in a book, What is the Bible? by Pastor Bell. He says, let me tell you a little bit about disruption. It is disruptions that are often the catalysts for our growth. You travel, you taste, you meet new people from other tribes, you read new things, you hear new perspectives, you see data or research you hadn't seen before, and you discover that your previous way of categorizing and labeling and believing are not adequate anymore. You have a choice in the moment. You either ignore or deny or minimize your experience or you open yourself up to the very real pain of leaving that way of understanding behind. This is often incredibly exciting and liberating, but it also can have a traumatic dimension to it. Like a carpet has been yanked out from under you like the stable ground you've been walking on for so long and is now trembling. Disruptions are often the catalyst for our own growth. So the first question is why? The second, where is God in all this? We have two more questions left. The next one is how long? How long am I going to be suffering? How long is this going to hurt? We had a lady that lost her husband more than a year ago. And just a few months ago, somebody came into my office and said, can you please go to the chapel? There's a lady there just crying and crying and crying. She came for a, just a simple test, but she didn't even go to the test. She went into the chapel and just started crying. So I said, I'll go and see her. And I recognized her immediately because a year ago, her husband had died in the ICU. And if all of you read the Lake, uh, Lake Union, Carol, you might have read the story about the 50th anniversary celebration that we did in our hospital in the ICU. This was the wife. So just to wrap, summarize, they had come a year ago. He was sick, and we found out that the children had to cancel their 50th uh, anniversary celebration because he was in the hospital. And so the nurses and I, we all got together. And I'm like, well, let's have a party, you know? Well, we're right here in the ICU. And this team of nurses and people from the kitchen, they came together, and it was amazing. The kitchen prepared something that you only find in a catering, fancy catering. 
business. They had two um, carts, two carts full of stuff, but they put tablecloths, they were dra draped just right with flowers, with um, plastic champagne glasses. We didn't have champagne, but we had other non-alcoholic drinks, with a, a cake that said their names, with uh, trays of food. Then I went to the party store and discovered that they sell decoration kits for a 50th anniversary. So I bought that and we decorated the entire room. We, we found a veil to put on her and flowers and we found out that they had a favorite song. Their song was, tonight I celebrate my love for you. And if you recognize that song, then you are over 50. <laughs> if you don't, yeah, you're younger. So we found it on the YouTube and we connected with it a little speaker and we told, it was a surprise for them, we told their family to come and it was flu season and, and we had to have permission for the kids to come because kids are not allowed in ICU during flu season and we asked the children to bring pictures of their wedding and their life so we created big poster boards with all their pictures and the room was amazing, amazing. And so finally, we had all the nurses and some of our, our chief nursing officer came and we played the music and we all kind of processed into the room with, with the food and the veil and the, and there was just, there was not a dry eye. And we had a little renewal of vowels and we sang Amazing Grace and we prayed for them and then we gave them time to share the happy memories of their life together for the children. And what we did not know is that day was the last day of his life. We did not know. And so a year later, this woman is in the chapel crying. I recognize her, and she says, I haven't stopped crying. It's been a year. How long? How much long is going to be? When you're in suffering, you ask, how long? Now this question, Jeremiah had to address it. And he had to address it very directly because there was one prophet that Jeremiah said, false prophet, so pay attention or pay no attention to what he says. Because that false prophet predicted that you guys are going to be here for two years and then you're all going to go back. Now, two years, you can put up with anything in two years. You can put up with the foreign gods, the enemies, hate, the, their own hate for the enemies, their distance from home, their temple. You can hang on false hope. You can hang on for two years. You know, this two years is very crucial because John and I have moved a lot. We've been in Virginia, Florida, Tennessee, California, Washington, now in Illinois. And he is more, you know, he moves, no problem. But I put roots. And then when we move, I resent it. And my first two years are painful. I miss my friends, I miss my routine, I miss everyone. And then everybody in their new land that we go um, starts kind of resenting me because I'm comparing everything to the previous place. Have you, am I the only one doing that? Well, when I was there, we did it this way or when and there. It's just my own way of dealing with this is uncomfortable. So the first two years. You know, I came here and I'm driving to take my son. First we came from a small town and now I'm here. It takes 30 minutes just to, no, 45 minutes to take him to HAA. Okay, our town in Wenatchee would take 15 minutes from one edge of town to the other. 
45 minutes to take him to school. And then I'm trying to listen to the, to the not the weather, but well, the weather, that's another thing, but to the traffic report so I know where to go. And I know that there's a 355 and a 55 and a 90 and an 80. But when I listen to report, you all know, there's no numbers. They talk like the, what are some of the, I, the Eisenhower, the Yike or Ike or Ike, I don't know. I'm like, I went home, it's like, you guys are crazy. You name your highways. We name pets, not highways. You know, when I go and I see the signs, there is no name. How I know which one is which? I said, well, they just know. Oh, you guys are very friendly to all new people that come to your town. You know, you just know. I was so mad. I just remember, like, you take our son to school. I'm done with it. I was so frustrated. It's like, it's traffic everywhere. It takes forever to go anywhere. And I just struggled two years. But, you know, after two years, I learned that there's such thing as, like, books on tape. Well, it's just more on CD or in your phone, and, and so I discovered some good books, and actually I, sometimes I drive slowly because I wanna hear the end of that chapter, and uh, I still don't know the names, and I refuse to learn them. That's just by principle. That's it. I, I give up. I tried, I give up. Uh, you know, I learned, um, now I'm like, I'm like a Chicagoan, you know. I know that Cubs used to be losers, but now they're champions. Blackhawks used to be champions, now they're losers. The Bears, well, there was hope until that pole got in the way. Um, the, bull, the Bulls, well, that's hopeless. That's what the men in my house say, but the Bulls are hopeless. So after two years, but those two years, you kind of refuse. No, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. This is not where I am. It's hard to do it. So Jeremiah had to address the two-year prophecy because they were holding on to false hope. And when you hold on to false hope, you don't move on. And when you, do, you don't move on, you don't grow. And you don't fulfill the plan that God has for you, whatever you are in life. I don't know what kind of losses you've had, but you cannot hold on to false hope. And so this is what the word. As soon as Babylon's 70 years are up. They were holding on to the two years. And Jeremiah said, no. Not two years. 70 years are up. And not a day before. I'll show up and take care of you as I promised. And I'll bring you back home. 70 years. Right after that, that's when they said, that's the famous 29-11. I don't think they were even hearing that. They were still, their ears are still ringing from the 70 years. Their people did not even live long enough to see that day. There was some symbolic in that 70 years. Because you know how the Old Testament has symbolism in names? It's a complete year. So there's many theologians that believe, and I love this idea, that the exile of the people of Israel is a parallel, parallel to our life on this planet in a world of sin. We live in the exile. We live in the exile. 
And God says when the 70 years, basically when the time is completed, seven is a number of completion. When the time is completed, I will come back and I will take you home. So when people tell me how long, I so wish to tell them in the hospital that is going to be quick. It's going to be all right. You're going to be all right. But my training tells me otherwise. They can't. And I tell them that it's going to be long when somebody just lost their, when somebody is 15 and they just, their mother was shot in the head. And I say, it's going to be long. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to be difficult. And you need to surround yourself with people that love you. And you need to go to support groups. And you need to find help. But you are going to be okay. There's going to be a new normal. Eventually, little by little, there will be a new reality. It will never be the same. I can tell you that. You cannot go back. You go forward with God's strength, and you create a new reality, and you're going to grow. You will be okay. And I think that's what Jeremiah was trying to tell them. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay. And the last question that I hear, first is why, then is where is God, and then, I already forgot how long, and then I heard this one, one time through a lot of pain in her voice. What am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do now? This happened. I was on call one Saturday morning, and they called me because this young mom, she was maybe 30, she was fine in the morning. She had taken her son to a doctor's appointment, and she collapsed. Everything was fine, no signs of anything. By that night, she was dying. And there were two young kids right next to her holding her hand and saying, Mom, please don't go. Her sister was there. And her sister said, she raised me. There were a lot of issues with the parents. And her sister said, she was my rock. She raised me. And she was so distressed. She eventually was throwing up. And she was almost on the floor. And I had to just hold her. And she said, how am I going to go on? I cannot, she cannot go. And I grab her by the shoulders and I said, look at me right now. This is how you're gonna go on. One step at a time. You put one foot in the front of the other. You live one moment at a time. You give to her children what she gave to you. What do you do? You're going to live life. Don't forget that. So here's what Jeremiah says to the people of Israel that is in exile. If you can go to the next one. So what are we supposed to do in exile? And he says, build houses. Make yourselves at home. Put in gardens. Eat what grows in that country. Marry, have children, encourage your children to marry and have children so that you thrive in that country, not waste away. Next slide. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. We're talking about the enemies. 
Pray for Babylon's well-being. Now, that in between parentheses, I added, that is not in the Bible. Your enemies, mind you. Pray for your enemies. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. So he's saying live your, your lives one day at a time. Put down roots in your new reality. Go to work. Turn your houses into homes. Love your family. Raise children. Go to family and friends gatherings. Go to birthday parties. Love your neighbor, even the ones that are different from you that you may not even like. Pray for those who are the cause of your suffering. Pray for those who are the cause of your suffering and make their lives better. I would have a cow if I heard that. Have you ever been there? I have been there. When somebody has hurt me, you're kidding me? And yet, I found myself captive of my own resentment. Who said that? I think it was Oprah Winfrey that said, resentment is drinking cyanide and wait for the other person to die. <laughs> right? Right? So he wants them to be free. And he knows how our soul works. God gave him those words. Pray for the ones that gave you suffering. Pray that their lives are better. Basically, create a community where you are. Bloom where you're planted and worship this new God that you're becoming to understand like you've never worshiped before. Build your lives. So sometimes, and this is January, everything feels heavy and everything is hard. We don't see the sun and any kind of suffering just gets worse. But live your lives. Put one, house in, one foot in front of the other. Love your families, create homes, create communities. Because the world around is watching us, the Christians, who know this God. And they need to know who this God is. Why are lives different? It's because of the God we worship. So shark attacks and Nebuchadnezzars are going to come into your lives. In many different shapes and forms. And maybe you're facing one right now. Maybe your shark attack or Nebuchadnezzar is in your family life. Maybe there's some real struggles right now in relationships with your family members. Or maybe it's in finances. There's some unexpected events that is putting the financial demand above the financial resources that are available. Or maybe it's health. Their illness to you or to your family members or people that you love that are outside your control in spite of how healthy you live. Or maybe it's at work, because there are plenty of events in our economy that are constantly threaten our job securities. Companies are constantly changing and constantly adapting. And other challenge, whatever it is that you might be facing at work. So when we get attacked by those kind of sharks or Nebuchadnezzar's, what are we to do? Well, let me tell you what Bethany Hamilton did. I want to circle back to that first story. The surfer in Hawaii, she lost an arm to a tiger shark. And yes, she cried. And yes, she got angry. And yes, she questioned God. And she grieved what she had lost. But it came one time when she made a decision that the shark 
would not define her life any longer. Instead, a Bible verse from the Old Testament written to a people in exile provided the strength that she needed at that moment. For I know, if you can put that slide again, for I know, no, go back, go back. All right, for I know the plans, well, that's in the message. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. And she began to live again. She learned how to get dressed with one arm. She learned how to cook breakfast for her family with one arm. If you saw the movie, you probably remember sitting on the floor, holding an orange with her two feet, and using the one arm with a knife and cutting oranges. She got very creative. She learned how to surf again because the shark took her arm, but she made sure that that was all that the shark took. One arm. Not her joy, nor her love, nor her dreams, and nor her faith in God. So don't let the shark attacks take from you what they cannot take unless you give them permission. Because God is stronger than anything else, any attack in our life. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and future. He does not say a perfect life, but he gives a lot more. And so she began to train again, and a year later, that she is, that she is back at, with one arm. She went back competing at the national level. Two years later, she placed first at the national surfing competition. She went on to do commercials for Volvo. She modeled a jewelry line model. She wrote a book. She appeared in many TV shows and spoke in many different venues, encouraged people of all ages to not let shark attacks in your life define you. She helped people choose instead to be sustained by faith in God's promise. She went on to do what the prophet Jeremiah said to do. Next slide. She got married. Next slide. She had children. I read a little article that was so cute. They were asking, how do you change diapers? She said, I use my two feet. With my two feet, I hold the feet of the baby, and then I have one arm to do the rest. Next slide. She has more children. Marry, have children, live life. My hope for you this morning, I guess this afternoon, is that whatever sharks or Nebuchadnezzars are right now in your life, that you don't let them define you or your life, and you don't let them dis displace your center of spirituality. The God who transcends circumstances is always present, always sustaining, always guiding, and always bringing meaning to whatever reality you're facing right now. And I want to share this Bible verse from James 1, 2, 4. Consider a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let us do its work so you become mature and well-developed, well not deficient in any way. One of the sayings that we have in chaplaincy is that only grief can heal grief. Is the feeling of pain 
that will eventually take the pain away. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Thank you.